This is supplemental material on dealing with the demonic in the teaching that I have done already. I mentioned that I had a little bit more for you. We're gonna be going through that material now. We had run out a little bit of time and I wanted to make sure that you had it. I tend to put disclaimers in a lot of my teaching that I am not the only authority on the subject or even the best authority on a subject, but this one in particular, I wanted to highlight out the fact that although I have been involved in numerous issues of exorcism and prayed for both possessed and heavily oppressed and done a lot of study on the subject, that does not make me an expert. That there are some people that God has called to kind of give over their whole lives to pursue this type of ministry. And I wanna be very sensitive to the fact that they are gonna have great insights and more information than I'm going to have. But I do believe that it's important that as we're going through this material, I give you what I have and what I believe that the Bible says. So that's kind of our take. You're not gonna hear a whole lot about method. There's a reason for that, and that is because uh, the Bible is very quiet about method. It tells you that something happened. It may even tell you why it happened, but it doesn't often tell you how it happened. If, you, for example, you uh, read a passage that says, and they laid hands on, it doesn't explain how they laid hands on. Did they touch them on the shoulder? Did everybody lay hands on? Was the person kneeling? Were they not? Did people pray out loud or was it all quiet? The Bible's very, very quiet on method, and I'm going to be rather silent on method. I'll mention a few things, but not everything do I have worked out. And now, the other reason I wanna be careful on that is that in the area of dealing with the demonic, like other areas of the supernatural, we are still learning and growing, and there are some things that um, are in deliverance ministry concepts that may or may not be accurate, and here's kind of why. There is a danger when you only rely on experiential training, and what I mean by that is that you did something and it worked. The problem with that is we don't know why it worked. Sometimes God's just really nice to us, and despite us doing a really good job of being bizarre and doing things that are not very effective, He is kind to us. And sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to get something done regardless of whether the method is appropriate or not. So I have a bit of a caution that a lot of deliverance ministry trainings, tools, concepts are taken from experience. This worked for us, so it might well be the case. An additional problem here is that when you're dealing with a demonic, uh, I have gone through different trainings and teachings and I will plumb back to say, why do you do it that way? And it will tend to be uh, a few times, not the majority, but it will tend to lean back into the idea that, well, we learned along the way that this is how demons work. Uh, unfortunately, the problem with how demons work is that Satan is known as the father of lies and demons follow right along suit. So what that means is, if you're learning information from a demon, if a demon is speaking about it, or you learn things through the occult, the danger there is we're not quite sure either that that is how it is, whether or not that is a manipulation tool of the enemy, because remember, Satan is an illegitimate leader, so therefore he has to work off of manipulation and bullying and convincing people of things that may or may not be true. Um, I'll give you a couple examples on that. 
Uh, I have been told in some uh, deliverance ministries that a demon must reveal its name in order to have control over it. I don't believe that that is accurate, and that might be a misreading of scripture. I've been told that that there are channels uh, in the earth about the earth is divided into segments and there are stronger areas of demonic control and strongholds that are physical. Uh, not so sure if that is, is correct or not. So as we begin, what I wanted to caution was we have to be very careful on saying how it is exactly, especially in terms of method. So I'm gonna be a little bit quiet on that, but here is the reality. We have to do something. Um, that it is, we need to have a healthy filter, but it is not helpful to merely critique every other ministry. Sometimes we get into stuff like this and we say, well, I really don't like how that ministry is doing it. Um, then what is our solution? If indeed you watch this and you're studying and saying, well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with all of Pastor Lance's material, that is absolutely fine, but what is your solution? We have to do something. There is an advancement of the kingdom of God that needs to be happening and there needs to be a freeing of the captives. So what is our plan? I'm just going to lay out what I see, but we cannot simply sit back and criticize. We need to cut some other ministries some slack. Not everybody is doing things right. There is no church that does it perfectly, um, but it is important to give them a little room to grow. Let me, let me cite an example, Mark 9, 38. Uh, John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So in other words, even the followers of Jesus said, hey, those guys aren't on our team. I don't like how they're doing it. And Jesus said, if they're doing it in my power with my heart, it is legitimate regardless of whether or not it is exactly as you wish. Now, we start with the Bible. We go from there. Everything that I'm about to lead you into is just what I see in scripture, and then we can move from there. So let's begin. Uh, when Jesus came the first time, he was coming to a planet that was truly his in ownership. But in his absence, we had given over dominion and the father had allowed it, but there was a transference to where the enemy, the devil, Satan, had set up his own kingdom here on earth. And because he was the sharpest and he was the one that uh, dominated the most as he bullied his way, he got dominion to the degree that even when Jesus arrived in the desert temptation, we find that Satan was able to offer to Christ all the kingdoms of the world, their authority and their glory. And he wouldn't have been able to offer that if he didn't have access to that. Jesus didn't correct him and say, uh, actually all that stuff is mine, even though it rightfully is, Jesus is the rightful master of the universe. What he was saying is, I get that these people and these systems are how you set it up and they are allowing you to have authority. Uh, it talks about the whole world being under the control of the evil one. Um, we can debate about how it got there. All we know is that 
it got there. But what that means is, is that Satan is an illegitimate king. God is the king over all creation. As I mentioned earlier, as a bully, he has an awful lot of power that he shouldn't have. So, when Jesus arrived, uh, he put the bully king on notice that he was taking back control, and that began a clash of kingdoms of sort, where the kingdom of God was infiltrating the kingdom of darkness. Now, once again, let me cite that. John 14, 30, Jesus said, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. So, as a steady foundation of what we're about to talk about, we need to know that indeed we are operating in a foreign land where there is another person ruling and it is not yet here on earth as it is in heaven. We are what has been referred to as we are in a kingdom of now, but not yet. So what we wanna understand as we begin is that the current and temporary illegitimate ruler of the earth, he is referred to as Satan. Uh, and he is referred to as the devil. And Jesus, when he came, the Bible says, rendered his kingdom inoperative, meaning there's a wrench in the works, that how everything was going smoothly before, when Jesus came in, he disrupted that. And we're gonna talk about the power of what he did, but he broke the monopoly that Satan had over the earth. Everything was going Satan's way. People were being led astray, things of God were being blocked, and Jesus came in and messed that up for Satan. Even though Satan still, the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, 8, still roars about seeking who he may devour, he is now limited, he is now leashed, he now has a, uh, a cap put on what he can and can't do. So we must always remember as well that Satan's rule is temporary. Now, uh, 1 John 5.18 about believers, John says this, he who is born of God, he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So let's talk about this issue of who Satan is and who demons are. Um, first of all, if we're reading scripture right, and there is allusions, we believe, to descriptions about Lucifer and the devil and Satan and things like that, but some scholars still debate that, whether or not the Old Testament prophecies or passages. Uh, for example, uh, the king of Tyre, the, there's a prophecy about him and they say, well, there was no king of Tyre and it seems to refer to Lucifer or the ancient cherub that led a rebellion. If we're reading that right, then this is what we know. At one time, a heavenly being, uh, the pinnacle of God's creation, likely a cherub, which is a throne defender, a minister to God and for God, um, likened to the smartest, most beautiful, extraordinary being of God's creation. His name was Lucifer, and that means light bringer, day star, shining one. So he would have been equal to or higher than an archangel, if you think about Michael the archangel. And he seemed to be the primary one or one of the primaries that God did all of his ministry through in running the universe. Well, along that path, 
pride entered his heart and he began to think he can do it on his own and he doesn't need the Lord's help. And so if we are reading it right, he gathered one third of the heavenly forces to go with him in a rebellion, a rebellion against God and against his throne. And it didn't go very well for him. He ended up losing that fight, got cast down, and he now dwells here on earth. And the reason why I highlight that is we have some Hollywood distortion, we have some uh, ancient writings distortion, and then we have some, some more modern poets distortion. A lot of people talk about Satan being in hell, running hell, the whole pitchfork thing, all that stuff is, is, is made up. So first of all, he is not in hell. Hell is a temporary holding facility for the unrighteous. He is not in hell, he's actually here. So I wanna be very clear on that. Um, from what we gather, he is angry, bitter, and resentful, and he thrives on power and praise. And when he rebelled, his identity was changed. Uh, as a matter of fact, his name went from Lucifer to Satan. Satan means adversary. Uh, the adversary of God or enemy of God. That's a, an English transliteration of a Hebrew word. He was called the devil and the devil means accuser. Um, and that comes from a Greek word, diabolos. So what are demons? If that's the big dog of the bad side, who are the demons? Demons are fallen heavenly beings. We refer to them as angels, but angels normally means messengers of God. So they are no longer messengers of God. They are a fallen angel or a heavenly being that is no longer uh, in obedience to God. They partnered with Lucifer or Satan, and they now carry out his agenda, so they are his worker bees. Uh, now, there are two critical concepts in order to get our minds wrapped around with dealing with the demonic uh, that we have to have always in the back of our mind. Number one, Satan is a created being. He is not equal to God in any way, shape, or form. There was a time when he was not. God is the uncaused cause, the prime mover, the one that has existed for all eternity backwards and forwards. Um, when God makes something, the creation is not in any way equal to the creator. So there is not a dualism where we say, well, there is a almighty God and then an almighty evil. That is incorrect. There is an almighty God and a rebellious creation. That is what Satan is. He's on borrowed time. All right, number two, the end of the story has already been written. What that means is we know how it's gonna go that we can look at books like uh, Revelation that show that in the end, Satan and the demons will be put away, cast into the lake of fire for all time. Satan has read the book, demons have read the book, and everyone is clear. Now, I'm not sure whether or not Satan is bold enough and has enough hubris or pride to believe that he can overcome what God has written, and that is very possible. But I will tell you that when Jesus was here, the demons seemed very clear on their future and it didn't look bright to them. So if we're gonna talk about the demonic, we need to know that he is a uh, created being and that the end of the story has already been written. So whatever you hear me teach now, keep those in the back of your mind. So we're gonna break this into a couple different segments. The, the first one is this, how Jesus handled the demonic while he was on earth. 
He is our boss, our king, our master, and he led a great role model or example. So Jesus is the king of kings and the master of the universe. And let's be real clear on his relation to everything else. Colossians 1, 16. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Let's pause there. It is not just stuff down here that was created by Christ. All things, everything that is reality, both supernatural reality and physical reality, that includes Satan and demons and everything that exists. Let me repeat it again. For by him, Jesus Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Once again, Jesus, God the Father, Holy Spirit, completely different ball game than anything created. So when Jesus was on earth, he had come from there, was now here, and he interacted with demons, and they had a rather uh, funny way of responding to him, um, very unlike how Hollywood has it. Let me give you an example. James 2.19, James said, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder, meaning the very idea of God makes them nervous. They are very clear where they stand and where he stands. Luke 4.40, and demons came out of many people, the Bible says, crying, you, Jesus, are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah or the Christ. What did they say to him? You are the son of God. What all the rest of us were still struggling to understand, what mankind was just now having revealed to them, they knew full well where it came from. They know he is the son of God. They're very clear on their theology in that way. Luke 4:33. and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out in a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Let me cite uh, a few more. Luke 8, 26, when he saw Jesus, the demon-possessed man, he cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And we go to verse 31, the demons begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Uh, if we read a, a, a parallel passage to that in Matthew 8, 29, the, demo, the demons said this, have you come here to torment us before the time? 
So in other words, they know the end of the story, they're scared out of their minds, they know his authority, and they're afraid he's going to speed it up, and when he gets near them, since he's the boss, and whatever he says they have to do, they were nervous that he was going to send them to prison ahead of times. All right, Jesus can do all things. He was here on this planet, and yes, he was living out a surrendered human life to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit as an example for us. But once again, he is the Son of God. Therefore, he cast out a lot of demons, and he can get them all out. This is an important truth. Luke 6, 18, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. There is never going to be a scenario whereby Jesus was unable to cast out a demon. He has all authority. There will be no situation where Jesus cannot cast out a demon. He has all authority. This is critical. And he can make whoever is tormented by a demon, he can make them right and peaceful. Think about the man that was filled with a legion of demons, uh, the Gadarene demoniac in Luke 8.35, it says this, then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Once again, if you are involved in any type of prayer ministry over someone that is tormented, this is a beautiful passage to not only for you to know, but for them to know that Jesus can make all things right. So how did he handle his ministry down here? Well, he cast demons out and most commonly, he did so vocally. He spoke it out, whether that was a rebuke or a command, Mark 9, 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. This forceful commanding, it is an authority speaking to someone underneath his authority. I command you to come out. Luke 8, 29, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Here's another thing. It doesn't always have to be an aggressive thing. Matthew 8, 16, people talking about Jesus said, quote, he casts out the spirits with a word. He says the word, it happens. But sometimes, in a little bit more of a rare sense, and this is an unusual story, but if we look in Luke 13, 10, there are times when Jesus laid hands upon someone in a casting of a spirit. At least that's what it appears to be. Let me read that to you. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And you said, well, isn't that just a healing? Jesus tended to lay hands on people when he healed them. The thing is, is that when he is chastised for healing her, uh, he says, she has been bound by Satan for 18 years and you're not going to set her free. 
So once again, what was going on in that scenario? I don't know. But periodically, it appears that Jesus would lay hands upon people if it was appropriate in a casting. Now, sometimes he didn't even have to be there. He didn't have to command it with a voice. He didn't have to touch the person. He just thought it and it happened. For example, the Syrophoenician woman who came up to him and said, my daughter is at home and she is suffering from demon possession. Can you do anything about it? And he began to say, I'm here for the Jewish people. And she said, yeah, but even the puppies get the crumbs that fall off the table. And he said, wow, what amazing faith. He said, go home, your daughter is fine. Meaning he just said a thought internally and the demon was cast. So once again, I just need us to bake in the power of Jesus. Um, and something else that he did that was a little bit unusual was he tended to quiet the demons. Let me give you an example, Luke 4:35. But Jesus rebuked him, the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Why quiet them? Uh, some ministries today think that that is the reason why we ought to quiet all demons that we are interacting with. If they begin to manifest, you say, you need to be silent in the name of Jesus. Now, that's not what the Bible says, although it may be a very smart practice. So let me explain why. Jesus was not so much silencing him that that there's something wrong about them communicating. He was silencing them because of the message they were communicating. They were outing him as the Messiah when in fact he was to follow the Father's agenda by gradually revealing that he was the Messiah over time. The demons were jumping ahead and disrupting the plan. That's why they were silenced. Now, is it still wise to silence a demon that may wanna communicate as it is manifesting, let's say, when it's being cast out. Um, we're just gonna go on wisdom here. The answer may well be yes, but let's be clear why. Um, if indeed demons lie and manipulate, it might be a dangerous thing to have them communicating and causing dissension amongst the prayer group or even in the person praying for them. So whenever necessary, once again, that is an authority that God has given to us. Um, I wanna answer one key question at this point, which is why didn't Jesus just get rid of them all? If they are the enemy, why not just eliminate them? Well, he will, in the end, lake of fire. We mentioned that. But until then, they're still useful. And what I mean by that is Satan plays an intriguing part in the plan of God, which is he's the other guy. He's the foil, he is the other option. That when Jesus came the first time, he is presenting a kingdom of persuasion. He's presenting a kingdom of decision, a kingdom of love and woo, a kingdom of do you want me? And to give people an option, there has to be another option. And that is indeed what Satan fulfills that role. Demons, and the devil also play the role of showing what happens when people say no to God. We have a broken world, we have bad leaders, we have other things that are coming after us. That's why we need to say yes to God. So Jesus was not in a rush. He was not trying to cast demons out forever. There's only one time that I can read in scripture 
when uh, God went ahead and removed some early, and that is in Genesis chapter 9 with the Nephilim, uh, where the, they stepped out of bounds so far that God said, you're done, locked them up, threw them into an abyss, and chained it over, and they're, not, they're never getting out. Um, in general, Jesus just moves them around. If you remember when the demons were cast into the pigs, they were cast into the pigs, ran down the hill, got in the water, died, the demons were released. So Jesus was not trying to hold them down. He doesn't care, he's not in a rush. He just moves them out of his way and out of the people that need to be set free. It's not about trying to get rid of them forever. That's a later thing. All right. Uh, section number two, what did Jesus do when he came the first time? Jesus changed things. He started things in the supernatural, in the natural, and that is what we are playing off today. So let me lay down a foundation for you on this. First John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, meaning that one of the primary reasons that Jesus came was to mess with the kingdom of darkness and to do something very powerful of setting people free. Hebrews 2.14, how did Jesus do that? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is here to set people free. 1 Peter 3.21 through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subject to him. Jesus came to demonstrate dominance. Jesus is the authority in all things. Hebrews 2, 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It had been testified somewhere, what is man, mankind, that you are mindful him, or the son of man, that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, meaning Christ. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Once again, the confusing, complicated kingdom of if God is in charge, why is Satan still moving around and doing bad things and bad guys winning, stuff like that. But it was the cross that ultimately spoke shame and breaking of Satan's kingdom. How do we know that? John 12, 31, Jesus answered now, Speaking of the cross, now the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross was pivotal to what happened to the kingdom of Satan. But Jesus is letting that play out over phases. Give you an example, Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You only sit down if you've completed something. 
waiting, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, even though he snapped the neck of the biggest part of Satan's power, he's allowing a process to carry out by which all things get handled. That's why we're in a progressive state right now. Um, now, how do we know all this dominance? Well, it's the massive amounts of demon casting Jesus did in the Bible. Have you ever considered why there's so many stories? One would suffice, but he was explaining his authority anywhere he goes and everywhere he goes, like a, a bubble of the kingdom, he was casting out the enemy, the darkness, the sin, the bad stuff. So demons were being cast everywhere of every sort. Let me highlight one more story for you. Uh, the Jewish people brought to him a mute demon-possessed man. The reason why that was key was that in the Jewish view at the time, incorrectly so, they believed that for a demon to be removed, it had to be confessed out by the person that was indwelt by the demon. But what if you can't talk? He was mute, so they believed he was an impossible situation that would never be free of the demonic. Jesus said, no, I'm the authority over all things and cast the demon out and everybody freaked out because they'd never seen that before. So once again, massive domination by Jesus. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians 1.21 says this, that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus in Revelation 1.17 John said this, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. The reason why I'm baking so heavily in who Jesus is, is that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the works of Jesus Christ, by the dominion given by the Father, that we as the church now operate in that power. So the more you firmly know that Jesus Christ is dominant in all things, your faith rises up, your confidence level is at a max to be able to say, if Jesus is in charge of everything and he has called me to have that same authority and power, then I shall not fear, but I will boldly go forward and advance the kingdom of God. So this is the argument that I'm putting forward to you. So did Jesus empower other people to do what he did or was it only him? Well, let's once again go back to the text. Jesus said to his followers in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We saw that happen in Pentecost. Once again, Ephesians 1.22, remember it says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Remember, if we are the body, the body carries out the will 
of the head. If Jesus is the mind that is controlling it, we are the body that carries out his works. So he empowered his followers to carry out his jobs and responsibilities. For example, Mark 16, Mark 16, 14, and these signs, Jesus said, will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons, verse 20. And sure enough, they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Jesus told him to go do stuff and he backed it up with his power. More specifically, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles. It says, and he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. That's very, very clear. Jesus empowered the 12. Let me show you how powerful he had given them the authority. Listen to this. This is what happened in Acts 5, 12. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter, that's Jesus' follower, as Peter came by, they hoped that at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing him the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Peter's ministry was so empowered by Jesus that he was duplicating him even to an extreme degree of his shadow passing over people, knowing that even his shadow carried the power of God. So once again, when Jesus said, greater things than these will you do, you're starting to see some of that. So lest you think that only the 12 were empowered and that, oh, well, the apostles did mighty works and they cast out demons, we can't do that. Hold on. Do you remember when Jesus sent out the next level? He had his 12, then he selected out 70 or 72, depending on the translation that you have in Luke 10, one through 20. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, yeah, while you guys worked, and I'm inserting that part, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. That is not the apostles. That is the next layer out. They had the power over all the enemy. Giving you some examples on who those types of people were because it kept echoing out. Philip was not an apostle. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, quote, verse seven, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. He was the next ring out. You know who else was the next ring out? Paul the apostle. We think of him as being an apostle, but he was not one of the original 12. He was actually later. He never got to see Christ on earth until after his resurrection, Jesus Christ came to him personally and commissioned him. And look at how much power God moved through him. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that, he, that had touched his skin 
were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. When your laundry is casting out demons, that's some serious power. What I'm trying to tell you is that Jesus took all that power and authority that was in him. He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go therefore, and he shifted it over. He imparted that power into his followers, and they began to do extraordinary things. John 12, 27, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What did he mean? John 16, 33, take heart, I have overcome the world. So if he did it by the cross, if he did it by all the things that he worked while here on earth, what exactly did he do? He gives us indicators in Matthew 12, 28. When he was challenged on his method of how he was casting demons, Jesus said, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And lest we miss that, Luke records the same stuff with a little nuance. In Luke 11:21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's the point? Jesus said, when I, the stronger one, come in, I can bind Satan to a degree that now my followers can plunder his house. It's why he uses phrases like, I give you the keys of the kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail, or about how we have the power to demolish strongholds. We'll get into that. It's amazing. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, for I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right, let's talk about section three what demons can and can't do, and what we need to do about it. Let's get a little more practical. Satan and demons seek our harm. Why? What do they have against us? Well, ultimately, they have only one thing against us, and that is the image of God. They hate God, and they can't hurt him anymore. They even tried to destroy his son. That didn't work out. And so, they're mad at us. Why? Because we're the only thing that they can get at that God loves deeply. Once again, if you wanna hurt somebody, you go after their children and anything that they love. So Satan and his demons are going after God's creation, both saved and unsaved. In particular, when we talk about spiritual warfare, that's what it's all about. It's trying to diminish the works of God. It's trying to harm that which he cares about, and it's trying to cripple the kingdom of God. So we know that that's the case, but God doesn't leave us alone. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded and be watchful, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Yes, they're seeking bad for us, but God is here protecting us and watching over us. So what do the demons do and what do they want? They want to cause problems for God. I'll give you four of them. If you want to go ahead and take notes, you might want to write this down. Number one, there are four ways in which demons interact with mankind. Number one, uh, possession. Possession. That is a complete takeover. The most severe thing that a demon can do is fully inhabit the body of an individual, a person. And what ultimately is happening is they're taking over the controls. So for example, in a plane, they would be climbing into the cockpit. They now have the controls in their hands. That person is no longer fully in control of their faculties. So this is, of course, what Hollywood likes to capitalize on, movies like The Exorcist and all that. It is a full takeover. Um, I do want to share uh, some accuracy out of God's word so that we're not only relying on Hollywood to tell us what's up. Uh, I'm going to give you three examples of demon-possessed people in scripture. There's quite a few mentioned, but I'm going to mention three. The first one is the epileptic boy. The Bible describes this young boy as being deaf and mute, having seizures due to epilepsy, foaming at the mouth, and that the demon inside him would throw him either into the fire or the water to destroy him. If you want to talk about an extreme case, this is an extreme case of possession. Does this stuff really happen? Yes, it does. Does it happen a lot? No, it does not happen a lot. It is all relative. The epileptic boy, demon-possessed, is one example. Another one is Judas Iscariot, um, the betrayer of Jesus. Um, Luke 22, 3, then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the 12. So once again, if you want to talk about possession, he didn't do anything creepy or freaky. His head didn't spin around. There was nothing like that. But he was inhabited. He was embodied, taken over fully by Satan. Uh, the other one is Legion, which is known as the Gadarenes demoniac. That's the naked demon guy, if you remember that story. Here's how he was described. Uh, naked, lived amongst the tombs, broke chains that tried to hold him, driven into the desert, cut himself with rocks, cried out all night and day. And when asked, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. So there can be more than one in an individual. Mary Magdalene, Luke 8, 1, 3, it says, And the twelve disciples were with Jesus and some of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So once again, it can get a little crowded in there, right? So it is not just simply a one-to-one -one ratio. It can be one or it can be multiple that possess a person. So that all sounds incredibly scary if you're brand new to it. However, I think that we are setting a very strong tone of God's authority. So what do we do about it? Well, let me explain what we should do. I'm going to use it as an example of Paul the Apostle in Acts 16, 18. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, 
turned and said to the spirit that was in the young girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. So the first thing that we learn is that what do we do about it? We remove the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when you say in the name of, it means under the authority of, under the banner of, it means in his stead. It means that you're signing his name to the check that you are writing. You're saying you have to go, not because I personally am stronger than you, but the one that I serve, I'm the ambassador, I'm the embassy of heaven. The kingdom of God dwells in me for God has indwelt me or tabernacled in me, therefore I am empowered by Jesus Christ to command you to go. You do not get to stay here. I get to tell you what to do under his authority. That's what it means to cast in the name of Jesus. Now, we do need to be a bit cautious because the name of Jesus is so powerful. Remember, at the name of Jesus, every what knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's so powerful that sometimes people that aren't even believers or Christians will try to utilize the powerful name of Jesus in casting out demons. But remember, only those that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God who have submitted and surrendered their lives to Jesus have that full authority. If you're messing around using the name of Jesus, but you're not legit, it's dangerous. How do I know that? There's a story in the Bible, Acts 19, 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, these are guys that traveled around casting out demons, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you, meaning I command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're trying to ricochet authority off Jesus, even though they didn't fully believe in him themselves. But the evil spirit, oh, excuse me, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you again? And the man in whom the evil spirit, who was the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and the number of those who had practiced magic arts, demonic witchcraft, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of the burned materials and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What's the point of that story? The point of that story is don't mess around. If you are not truly a believer, do not assume that you have the authority of the indwelt Holy Spirit. That is only for Christians. That is only for true believers. But if you are a true believer, understand that we have that authority and power of Christ to be able to engage the enemy. And so we just need to have some confidence there. How it works, remember I told you I'm not very good at talking about method because I wanna be quiet where the Bible is quiet, but there are a couple things that we noticed by the study of Jesus' ministry that we might be able to talk about. And one of them is that casting demons can get messy. What do I mean? Even with Jesus, it was still a process. Listen to this, Mark 9, 26. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. In other words, Jesus said, get out, 
then the guy went into convulsions, shook him terribly, then got out. We love the idea that the demon was gone, but understand the process got a little bit messy even when Jesus did it. Um, a lot of times it just looks scary, but there's no real harm. Luke 4:35. but Jesus rebuked the spirit saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm, right? If you're going to walk into this process and do spiritual warfare like that and do an exorcism, there is a messiness to it. You need to be calm in your spirit and confident in your spirit as you walk in to be able to say, all right, there may be a little bit of theatrics on the demon's behalf. I'm only here to make sure that it goes away. And ultimately, it can do what it wants to do, but it's got to go. It may even take a little bit. Listen to this. You may not have noticed this in the story. Luke 8, 28. When the demon man saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. We already know that part of the story, but listen to this line. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. In other words, that's in past tense. Jesus had commanded the spirit to come out and the demons are still hanging in there for a dialogue. So what's my point? It may take a little bit. There may be a process to it. There may be some resistance to it, even if full authority is there. Jesus had full authority, but he allowed there to be a process and some resistance. Now, we as broken believers rescued by Jesus, right? We might run into some scenarios that are a little more difficult than others where demons are more resistant to leave. Let me give you an example. In Mark 9, remember I mentioned that epileptic boy that was being thrown into the fire? Well, at the end of it, Mark 9, the, the little boy's father said, I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able to. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And when they had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Many of the early manuscripts add, and fasting. What is the point of that? Jesus had already given the 12, quote, he gave them power and authority over all demons. That had already been given. So if they had a power and authority over all demons, why was this one stickier? Even though they had the authority, there was still a process and that process involved prayer and fasting to get those particular sticky demons out. So once again, if you get involved in a scenario of casting a demon and it is not leaving, that does not mean you do not have the power and authority. It may be that God wants you to go through a process by which his power will course through you more intensely to remove it. That is what we would refer to as spiritual warfare. Philippians 1.19, Paul said, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's really neat to assume that everything's gonna be easy. We do a little prayer, we do the right things, and then bloop, everything is fine. Everything will be fine, but there's still warfare, there's still process. But Mark 9.22, a man cried out to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for him who believes. 
Once again, our confidence needs to be strong and high. All things are possible for him who believes. Now, there is one particular circumstance that I refuse to cast out demons. I refuse to get into a deliverance scenario. And that is if the individual doesn't want it gone. Uh, this would be a scenario where a friend knows that their friend is possessed and there is a problem. They bring them to a pastor or to a leader or to a prayer warrior. And they say, my friend needs to be set free from this, but you know full well that the friend doesn't want it gone. Uh, that is a scenario I step out and said, nope, until they want to be free, I'm not doing that. Why? Because of Luke 11:24. In explaining how exorcism works, Jesus said this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds that the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other demons more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. If someone doesn't want it gone and they're merely going to invite it back in, it's only gonna make it worse and that's where I opt out. So I always have to have a dialogue with the individual and they have to really want it out. Now, sometimes Satan and demons manipulate and bully and the person is afraid. If the person's afraid, they can still be set free. But if the person is resistant and wants that demon in there, then there's no point in casting it out. You're only gonna make stuff worse. Uh, this does bring up a common question, which is, can a Christian be possessed? Um, this is a difficult question to answer. Let me explain why. On one hand, we have scriptural truth. 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So... Colossians 1.13, the Bible says that he, Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Here's the problem. On one hand, you have scripture that seems to suggest that Christians cannot be inhabited or indwelt or fully possessed by demons, and yet you have experience. Uh, I've been around scenarios where it sure looked like that. It looked like people that professed Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, were indeed possessed. If they were not possessed, they were heavily oppressed and it was hard to tell the difference. This is where you started getting a phrase that became popular in the late 80s, early 90s uh, called demonization, which is a nice way to say, hey, you're a Christian. I don't think you'd be possessed, but you sure look possessed. That's really what the phrase meant. Um, I don't have the answer to this scenario because if I reason it out, there's no way the Holy Spirit is going to share real estate with a demon. However, but what I've seen either means the person was not a believer, which I'm not quite able to say that, or that person uh, had a demon that was so all over them and taking over control of them that it seemed like they were dwelling on the inside. So unfortunately, I cannot answer that for you, but I do have a solution. Whether possessed, we're gonna go to category number two. Category number two is oppression 
and demonization. So let's say that you have a Christian or you have a non-believer who's getting heavy oppression. Demons are all over causing heavy problems. Whether that's internal or external, let me give you an example. Paul had a little bit of this. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I am not telling you that Paul was possessed. I'm not telling you that Paul was demonized. What I'm telling you was some effect that the enemy did, God allowed it to have lasting impairment into his body. Whatever that thorn was, we don't know. Some people guess one thing, some people guess another thing. I don't think it matters. The point is, it was referred to as a tool from Satan to harass him, and God let it through. All right, can demons physically impair people without possession? Yes, they can. Remember that woman who was bound for 18 years, she was bent over and couldn't even stand up. So if that is the case, what do we do about it? Uh, Well, here we go. First of all, we lock back in our identity. I repeat, Colossians 1.13, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you are being attacked, if your friend is being attacked, let us get locked back into truth our identity in Christ, who are we? We have been removed from the kingdom of darkness. This is our new status. This is where we belong, which is in freedom. Who the sun sets free will be right, free indeed. So Colossians 2, 9, for in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you also who were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, quote, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the number one thing we do if someone is being heavily oppressed by the demonic is we remember and are reminded and increase our faith as to who we are. It is about identity. Christian identity, Christian identity, Christian identity. Who is Jesus? Who are we? We've got to begin there because Satan operates off fear, operates off manipulation, operates off of condemnation. We need to have our head clear and that begins to set the foundation. Now, when we have someone that comes to us that is heavily oppressed, It is our job as believers to get them some freedom. We need to set some boundaries. Satan and his demons do not get to go wherever they wanna go. They do not just get to do whatever they're gonna do. I cite again, Acts 13, six, it says this, 
When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they're talking about Paul and his crew, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Paul, the good guys, and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop, will you not stop making the straight paths of the Lord. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What's the point? Paul sought this guy who was wrecking ministry and wrecking ministry and being spiritual warfare. He was demonically inspired to be causing problems. So he set boundaries. There are times when Satan needs to back off. And that's where you start getting that holy anger and the holy righteousness. Remember that slave girl that had that divining spirit. She was possessed and she was going after Paul and his crew, shouting every day irritatingly. They're all part of the Son of God movement. They're all part. It's not that what she was saying was wrong. It's she was being disruptive. It says, Paul got so irritated, he turned to her and said, get out and cast the demon out. Why? Boundaries. Now remember, just because we have authority doesn't mean we get cocky. It is not you and I. It is God. We are his children. The Holy Spirit is within us. But once again, we always come in with a humble, confident mindset. The Bible is very clear. If you look in the book of Jude, you do not speak negatively or blasphemous or insultingly about beings that are bigger and greater than you. It says, even Michael the archangel, when arguing with Satan over the body of Moses, didn't say anything bad against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. There is a respect that needs to come in because that speaks more about your character. But when we come in, we come in with confidence we come in swinging. Number three, not only is there possession, number one, not only number two is there oppression and demonization, but number three, and these are all descending order, number three, there can be life and ministry disruption. Remember, demons are trying to cause problems. Satan's trying to cause problems, especially for the church, especially for ministry, especially for you and I. So for example, uh, Satan can hinder ministry of believers. First uh, Thessalonians 2.17, Paul said, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but quote, Satan hindered us. If you look in chapter three, verse 10, it says, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Meaning he still didn't get a chance to get through. He had to do some spiritual warfare and pray through it so that he could carry on the ministry. 
that God had given him to do. So Satan can hinder ministry. Satan can control events that hinder Christians. Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. Once again, Satan controls events that cause disruption to ministry. Acts 16.16 was simply that story of that young girl who was harassing Paul and ultimately needed to be shut down. So what do we do about disruption of life and ministry? If the demonic is doing spiritual warfare in what we're trying to accomplish or within our lives, what do we do? Pray. We are given an extraordinary ability to connect with our Heavenly Father. We are given power in the Holy Spirit to pray and to command. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord is at hand, meaning the Lord is near us. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be stressed out about anything, but all things bring it up to the Lord. Once again, if there is disruption in life and ministry, we go into a prayer focus. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul said, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open up to us a door for the word to declare Christ. Who do you think shut those doors? Disruption by the enemy, shut the doors. World flesh devil, shut the doors. Paul said, pray for me, break through, get the doors back open so I can go do what I need to do. 2 Thessalonians 3.1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread and speed ahead and be honored as has happened among you, that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men. Fear not, uh, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Paul said, my ministry is being disrupted. Pray for me, pray breakthrough. Number four, not only possession, number one, not only oppression and demonization, number two, not only life disruption and ministry disruption, number three, but number four, Satan and demons operate off temptation and influence. Ever since the garden, when Adam and Eve were tempted to fall, it's been the same thing ever since. Satan has always been tempting and influencing people and trying to alter their situations to his advantage. 2 Timothy 2, 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, meaning the leader, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Listen to this, verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What is Satan and the demons trying to accomplish? To capture, lead into a trap, and ensnare into a mind of thinking to be underneath their authority so Satan is deluding and trapping people. Can Satan influence people in their mind and their thoughts? Of course he can. Acts 5.1, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the proceeds of the land? Of course. Satan's trying to lure us away all the time. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul was afraid that the enemy had come in and so disrupted the ministry that people were now losing faith. 1 Timothy 5, 14, 
I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Meaning he goes in, leads a temptation, and draws people away from God. That is his goal. Leaders are not out of it. 1 Timothy 3, 6 through 7, a leader can't be, can't be too young in the faith. Why? So that he would not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil, it says. But remember those those uh, traps are not so easily seen. Satan, it says, masquerades himself as an angel of light to try to deceive, right? Um, the whole idea that people would do Wicca and they would do witchcraft and they would do necromancy and they would do all these different things is the idea that they have been fooled into believing that that was a way to make their lives better. And they were willing to trade for it. That is a delusion of Satan. Demons, the Bible says, are behind all the idols of the world, the things that we make most important in our lives. Paul uses an extreme example by talking about how a lot of people didn't want to eat the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And he's like, you do realize that behind all those idols are really just demons, right? There is no other gods. There's one true God. And then there's a bunch of rebel distractors. Well, in that same way, when we look at things like fame and fortune and money and all the materialism of the world and all the things that we long for, if it's distracting us from God, it's an idol. What do you think's behind all that stuff? I'm not trying to say there's a devil behind every rock. What I'm trying to say is, do you think that it's not all part of the greater orchestration to get our eyes off Jesus? Of course it is. So what do we do? 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he gives you a whole test all the way through, if you want to read all the way down through verse 6. So what do we do about it? What about all these concepts and ideas and distractions and everything else? The Bible gives us an answer. 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. What does that mean? We have the power to shut down the enemy and his distractions. One way to do that is to resist the devil and just shut it down and say, I'm not doing that. I know what you're trying to get me to do. I know what you're trying to lead me into. I'm not buying it. James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. All right, let me wrap this up. Now I think you can understand why I needed to do some supplemental material. We certainly didn't have time for all of this in the main teaching. But let me, let me share what a modern-day deliverance ministry should look like and what it should be about. 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, life verse for me. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of self-control or sound mind. Um, we are not to be bullied and afraid. So whatever we are doing as the kingdom of God workers, we are to have confidence and faith and boldness in who we are in Christ and who he is. In Christ, we have overcome. 1 John 2, 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Jesus has done great works that allows us 
to do great works. And then finally on that piece, Ephesians 6.10, I think you know this one. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the, of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Once again, have our minds locked into the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Who gave us that? Jesus makes us righteous. And shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, meaning you know the truth of the gospel that Jesus is setting people free and you're ready to give that at any moment. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And what is the faith? That what God says is right and what Jesus promised will always come to pass, regardless of what circumstances or the enemy say to you. Take up your shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and put on your helmet of salvation. The idea that you have allowed Jesus to rescue you. Keep that helmet on at all times, protecting the softness of your mind. And with the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, you strike back and you defend yourself and you bring forward attack and you pray at all times in the Spirit. That's a passionate, fervent, Holy Spirit-inspired prayer that breaks strongholds with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You guys, this is not, it's not easy, but it's doable. It's right. It's how we were built. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. So what is my mandate to you? What does it look like? I believe that deliverance ministry is for every believer, not the intense stuff. There's certain the people that are gifted. There's certain leaders that can do that. But kingdom living, that's for everybody. You guys, we're the body of Christ. We do what the head tells us to do. We carry out what he started. If he started it, we carry it out. We set the captives free. If someone is bound, if Satan is messing with someone, if he's holding them down, if he's being a bully, you don't just watch it. You stop it and you set them free. We are here to advance the kingdom of God. We want more children of God, so we share the gospel, and if Satan is distracting them, we come against that in Jesus' name. We want more worship for our king around the planet. If anything is being hindered, where people are not free to be amazed by the glory of God, we step in and we do kingdom work and we stop whatever is shutting that down. Ultimately, it is our job as kingdom men and women to clear the area that God and his kingdom might prevail. Thank you so much for taking time with me. Hope you enjoyed the teaching. Obviously, there is so much more in this series. Can't wait to get to it. Have a wonderful, wonderful day.